Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, you're welcome here. And if you are not a Christian, uh, we want you to know that you are welcome in our group. You're welcome in our assembly. And we also want you to know that you do not yet have to believe to be loved. Uh, we are glad that you are here and glad that you can hear God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, uh, go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 46 is where we're going to be spending some of our time, or at least starting out our time this morning, and we're going to be covering a large section of Scripture. Again, this morning we're going to be covering Genesis 46 through 49. Uh, We don't normally cover uh, chunks of Scripture that are that large, uh, but we're going to be doing that today. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles in the chair racks there in front of you, so you should be able to grab one. And if you are not familiar with where to find things in the Bible, Genesis is the very first book. So you can work your way forward to chapter 46 and follow along with us, but we will also have the scriptures on the screen behind me uh, to help you out in that. Amazing Grace is a song that almost everyone here probably knows. And if you were to walk around your neighborhood and even talk to people who have no church background whatsoever, they have probably heard that song before if you were to bring it up. They may not be able to sing all the words for you, but they would know of this song. And there's a line in one of the verses of Amazing Grace, it's one of the verses that often gets dropped, but there's a line in one of those verses that goes like this, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. That that sentiment that his word is what is securing my hope is, is, is the thing that we're hanging on as we look forward to the good that God has promised. Because if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, whether you feel that that's the case or not right now, the Lord has promised good to you. And yet we live in a world where there are all kinds of things that are not good. And so, what we are hanging on as we await the full experience of God's good for us is the fact that He's told us that that's going to be so. And yet we sometimes struggle to take God's word for it, don't we? I appreciate when someone gives me their word, but I love it even more when they prove it. When they give me something tangible to hold on to, we sometimes struggle to take 
God's Word for our future good because we find ourselves in places and in circumstances where those promises don't seem to be coming true. In fact, we often find ourselves in places in life where those very places, those very circumstances would seem to push against the promise that God has good for us. Or we struggle to believe that the Lord has, is going to deliver on His promises for good for us because we have been waiting a minute now. And we still don't have any of that promise in sight. And so when things are going along pretty smoothly in your life, you can belt it out. The Lord has promised good to me. And you can think about those things in your life that are going well right now. And the Lord's goodness just seems to be pouring out over you. But there are other times when those words have to fight to get out. Because all that you're hanging on right now is God's Word. Because the place you're in and the amount of time you've been waiting might suggest otherwise. The Lord had promised good to a man by the name of Jacob. And we have been looking at Jacob's life as we have been making our way through the book of Genesis. And Jacob's been given some pretty significant promises. He is actually the, the third generation possessor of some pretty fantastic promises. He's going to have, he's gonna have uh, 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 nations come from him. Through his family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. He is going to be the possessor of a land as far as his eye can see from the north to the south to the east to the west. And yet Jacob is also a man who has experienced his fair share of heartaches. And some of those have been very much self-imposed as some of your heartaches have been. And some of those heartaches have been brought upon him through no fault of his own. One of perhaps his greatest heartaches is losing his favored son. Or at least thinking that he had lost his favorite favorite son, and making his way through life feeling the ache and the longing to see him again. But in these last chapters of Genesis, we have seen that Jacob has learned that the son that he had taken for dead is actually alive and well. And not only was his son Joseph alive and well, but Joseph had invited his father and his family to come to Egypt not only to escape the famine, not only to just scrape by, but to experience the best of the land. And so as Jacob is there in Canaan considering this invitation that, that his son has extended to him, he's wondering whether he should go or not. After all, he is living in the promised land. God appears to Jacob once again, and perhaps for the last time, as far as we know, at the beginning of chapter 46 with this message to him in verse 4. 
Genesis 46, verse 4, God says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob was going to need to abandon the promised land if he was going to survive. But he wasn't abandoning God's promises, and God wanted him to know for certain that God was not abandoning him. The chapter tells us that there are 70 people in total who make this journey from Canaan to Egypt. And when they arrive in Egypt, they settle in an area called Goshen, And they are not only able to find a place for all of their livestock, but the Pharaoh actually puts them in charge of all of his livestock. They're given a food allowance and all things things seem to be going well. But it also seems like perhaps God's promises are being put on hold. The Bible assures us that that's not the case. In Chapter 47 and verse 27, the Bible actually tells us that Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, his family actually flourishes in Egypt. It says in verse 27 of chapter 47, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And if you're attentive to Words and phrases that are used in the book of Genesis, there's that phrase that we've seen on numerous occasions, they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That phrase is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, where the first humans are given the responsibility as God's image bearers in his his creation to, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over it to be fruitful over it, and to multiply in it. They had the task of making the whole earth Eden. And though that task has been sincerely uh, made more difficult by sin, God's plan is still moving forward. He is ensuring that this happens even in places like Egypt. So Jacob finds himself now in Egypt out of the land that has been promised to him, having to basically escape for their lives because of the famine that is in the land. If you were in Jacob's circumstances, you might struggle to sing that line of amazing grace in that moment. The Lord has promised good to me. So why are we here? But Jacob's last recorded words for us in the remaining part of these chapters are a record of his faith. Jacob has been on this long journey and his life has been full of ups and downs. If you are, if you are looking through the Bible for heroes you are going to be sorely disappointed. If you are looking at the biblical characters and you're looking for them to provide patterns for your life, for the most part, you're going to be sorely disappointed. 
because they let you down again and again and again and again. There's one hero in the Bible. It's God. But Jacob is growing too. And even though he has been removed now from the promised land and is living in Egypt where a foreign king is taking care of him through his son, there are three indicators that I want to highlight to you in these chapters that show us Jacob's faith in the good that the Lord had promised. Now, these indicators are not going to be on the screen, so if you want to write them down, I'll give you a heads up what these three things are going to be. Jacob is going to give a request, he's going to give a blessing, and he's going to give a prediction. Those three items, a request, a blessing, and a prediction, are indicators for us of Jacob's faith in the good that the Lord had promised to him. So first, the request. At the end of chapter 47, Jacob realizes that his time has come. His life is drawing to a close, and so he has a request that he wants to make of Joseph. Genesis, in Genesis chapter 47, verses 29 and 30, that request is recorded for us. He says this, Do not bury me in Egypt. He knows he's going to die there, but his request is that he not be buried there. He says instead, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. That is an indication of faith, is it not? That is an indication of of Jacob's belief that though he may be sojourning in Egypt and and with the recognition that this is not going to be the kind of sojourn where he is going to have his life sustained and then he's going to be able to return back to the place that God had promised him, he realizes he is going to die there and yet he wants his bones to be buried at home. Because the Lord had promised good to him. And though he was not currently living in the promised land, he knew that God would restore them to it. That's the first indicator, that request, as an indicator of Jacob's faith that God had promised good to him. There's a second indicator. It's the blessing. The blessing. The next two chapters record Jacob setting his affairs in order, preparing to die. If you have the opportunity to set your affairs in order, we don't always have that opportunity. But if you had the opportunity to set your affairs in order, if you had the opportunity to to say the things to the people in your life that are important, that you want to say then you would find yourself in a position that Jacob is in where he has the opportunity to to say the things that he needs and wants to say to the people that are close to him. And in chapter 48, he takes the time to, to pronounce a blessing over Joseph and Joseph's two sons. 
He says this in Genesis chapter 48, verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And that's an interesting admission. Okay, this, is, this is a different Jacob talking. The Jacob that we've met in previous chapters is the Jacob that's making it happen. The Jacob that's making deals. The Jacob that's manipulating. The Jacob that is lying when he has to to get the things that he wants. But he is now a chastened man in his old age and recognizes that while he, think, he thought he had been doing it all along, the Lord was his shepherd. And the Lord had been his shepherd all the days of his life to this day. He says in verse 16, The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. He's referring to, to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. It must have been hard for Jacob to experience the culture shock of Egypt. Imagine meeting the son you thought was dead. Imagine meeting his family. Genesis tells us that, that Joseph is given, remember all, almost all marriages in these days are arranged, he's given a wife uh, who's from the priestly caste in Egypt. The mere sight, if, you, if you're a... If you're a grandparents, your, your grandchildren say stuff and wear stuff and do stuff that you're like, what is that? Maybe even if you're a parent, they do stuff like that. <laughs> Imagine the culture shock. You've seen what pictures of Egyptians look like, right? Uh, imagine the culture shock of seeing your son thoroughly Egyptian, and his sons, your grandsons, have no connection whatsoever to the promised land or your culture. They would have seemed so foreign to you. And yet, he is blessing these boys. He is pronouncing a blessing over them and asking for them to be a part of God's great promise that had been given to his grandfather and his father that he was passing on to his sons and to his grandchildren, that these thoroughly Egyptian boys would get an allotment in the promised land. And then in faith, he assures Joseph that God's promises are going to come to pass in verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope 
that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Just think about the poetry of that statement. There's one mountain slope that you could imagine in your mind's eye that you can describe to your children, to their grandchildren, and their grandchildren. And one day, you're going to walk through the grass of that mountain slope. And you're going to be in the land that's been promised. So that's the second indicator of Jacob's faith and the good that God had promised to him. He pronounces a blessing that anticipates those good promises. Here's our third indicator. It's the prediction that he gives. The prediction that he gives. In chapter 49, Jacob calls all of his sons together. He's spoken with with Joseph and with his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He's had a, a special moment with them. But now he gathers the whole family, as it were, together, all of the boys together. And he talks to them about the days to come. He speaks a word over them. And sometimes that word is encouraging to each boy. And sometimes that word is a bit discouraging. He tells some of them of the blessings that are going to come their way. And he tells others that they are going to finally reap what they sow. The characteristics that have been true of them throughout their lives are going to be spread into further generations. And we don't have the time this morning to look at what he says to each one of his sons. What I want to do is just highlight... The word that he gives to Judah in verse 49. He says this to Judah in chapter 49 and verse 8. He says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now, you may not remember this. I don't expect you to remember this, but uh, Judah's name is associated with praise. Uh, when in, in uh, I think it's chapter 28 or chapter 29, I can't remember off the top of my head, where, where they're having the war of children between Leah and Rachel to see who can have how many children and how fast they can have them. So now this word that's been spoken to him at birth is actually coming true. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. So Jacob is is speaking these words over his sons and he says something that very much anticipates a real, a very real future that does not seem to be coming to pass in Egypt, right? He's using all sorts of royal 
imagery here to describe the future for Judah. He, he, uh, he brings about this imagery of the lion. And lions are, are often associated with royalty. And not only does he conjure up this, this imagery of the lion, but he also refers to the scepter, the staff that a king would hold in his hand, and he says the, the scepter is not going to depart from between your feet. The, 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 the imagery is of a king sitting on a throne holding his scepter with the point of that scepter resting at his feet. So he's evoking the, this royal imagery over Judah. Why is he doing that? Because he has a promise from God that they're going to become a great nation. Now, he can't see any of that yet. They're a reasonably sized family. You know, if they were having a family reunion, they'd probably have to to rent two pavilions at the park. Okay, but we're not a nation yet. And yet the word that he speaks to Judah is is saying, you're going to be like a lion, you're going to have a scepter in your descendants. And we also see the, the progression of Judah's narrative arc. Because of all the brothers, Judah has been singled out throughout the entire story as the worst. Judah's the one that has all the bad ideas. And yet we see the progression of Judah as he moves forward in the story towards where he's actually offering up himself in Benjamin's place when they're first going to Egypt. This anticipates in ways that that Jacob never probably could have imagined another king that was going to come. That king's name is David. David is of the tribe of Judah. David is the high point of the monarchy in Israel. David is the one who rules over a consolidated kingdom of all the tribes. David's, under David's rule, is where they, the nation experiences its pinnacle of flourishing. Jacob would have been shocked to see the magnificence of David's kingdom. Solomon's temple, and everything that this little two-pavilion family would become. But he's doing even better than that. Because here, Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is also forging a link with the last book of the Bible, Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, we don't have time to talk through all of this, but in Revelation chapter 5, there is this, there are these, well, all of Revelation is, is, has these highly symbolic visions, but in, in Revelation chapter 5, there are these highly symbolic visions that John is writing about, things that he is seeing, and one of the things that he sees in this vision in Revelation 5 is the symbolism of a scroll. And this scroll is, is, contains God's plan for the future. 
But John, the one who is having the vision, is weeping because there is no one worthy to open the scroll. There's no one worthy to unfold, as it were, unroll this vision for the future. There's there's no one worthy to unfold the good that has been promised. And so he weeps. Yet John is comforted in his vision because in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, the Bible says this, this is John writing, he says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Isn't that interesting? How could he be the root of David? He should be the fruit of David. But he's actually the root of David. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the person who can unfold and unroll and unseal all of God's promises for good? Revelation tells us it is none other than Jesus Christ, King Jesus, the greater King David, the the ultimate one to which Jacob spoke when he said there is going to be a lion like figure, the scepter will never depart from his feet, and we hear things like, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Jacob, Jacob anticipates Jesus. And in anticipating Jesus, perhaps better than he could ever imagine, he is anticipating the descendant promised to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 who would place his foot firmly on the head of the serpent. Just a few verses later in Revelation, John tells us that this lion is also a lamb. And this lamb is worthy to unfold God's good future that has been promised because, in the words of the Scripture, by His blood He has ransomed, that is, rescued people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the linking up of the promises that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to Isaac, that God gave to Jacob, and that Jacob, while he's sitting on his deathbed in a foreign land, knowing he's never going to return, is anticipating the full expression of those promises better than he ever could have imagined. So the Bible calls us, the Bible calls me, the Bible calls you to faith, trust, belief, in the work of Jesus who shed his blood to rescue people from every kingdom, tribe, tongue, and nation. We all 
want good for ourselves, do we not? And yet we are trying to achieve good for ourselves in so many other ways. And we happen to live in a time and place where we have the time and money to pursue and try to create good on our own. When it is the Lord who has promised good to us. And it is his word that our hope secures. The unfolding of the future that you want that you so desperately seek, is not purchasable. It is purchased for you through the sacrifice of Christ. Jacob is certain that the Lord has promised good to him, and so with that, he instructs his boys to bury him in that same cave that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Leah, and now he himself would be buried in. And not only does that happen, but the first 14 verses of chapter 50 tell us that there is this great delegation of Egyptians to that cave to go to the funeral. Really a remarkable thing. So that's the story that we find in these chapters and the things that I want to highlight to you from that story. Weirdly, somehow, Jacob's life, with all of its major faux pas and problems, affirms this truth. God intends to keep his promises for our good. You might want to even personalize that a little bit. God intends to keep His promises for your good. And His Word is going to have to be the thing that secures your hope. Because those promises sometimes feel like they are galaxies away, do they not? There are a couple of lessons that we can learn from this as we consider God's promises to us for our good that I hope are encouraging to you. Here's the first one. God's promises grow in unexpected places. God's promises grow in unexpected places. Egypt seems like a step backwards. And yet the Bible tells us that Israel's family is not only there, they're not just twiddling their thumbs while they wait, but they're able to gain possessions there. They are able to flourish there. They are to be fruitful and multiply greatly. When Jacob spoke to Joseph, he was clearly hanging on to God's promises of being fruitful and multiplying and being given a land. But God 
for some reason, chose to include Egypt as one of the places where those promises would grow. Because God's promises often, not always, grow in unexpected places. Think about the Bible storyline. Moses would find God's promises growing after he killed a man and fled to the deserts of Midian. I don't even know where Midian is. I should probably look it up. God's promises would grow through a woman named Esther in the Persian court. God's promises would grow through Daniel in a place like Babylon. God's promises would grow through Paul in prison. And of course, there is no more unexpected place for God's promise to grow than the womb of the Virgin Mary. Because God's promises grow in the most unexpected of places. And so maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you a person who lives in a foreign land. You do. And maybe you are a person who is frustrated because this foreign land is not becoming the land that you want it to be. And that's something you got to get used to. There's a sense in which we all live in Egypt. There's a very real biblical sense in which we are all immigrants, aliens, strangers living in a foreign land far from home. And you might feel right now like your circumstances are the very opposite of God keeping His promises to you. Nothing in your life right now seems to be moving the ball forward as far as achieving God's promises. And, and that's all we want to see, right? I just want to see some sort of forward progress, but it seems like, football analogy, we keep losing yardage. If you don't know what football is, you can look that analogy up later. You probably know what football is. But God's promises grow in the most unexpected of places. And in fact, it seems He delights in bringing his good promises to pass ex nihilo, out of nothing, the way he created this from nothing. So as was true with Jacob, the same God who has brought you down will bring you up again. Of all the places that you've been that don't fit the narrative, you remember the places where we think our dreams have gone to die are the dark, secret places where we flourish 
and grow. So the first lesson is that God's promises grow in unexpected places. The second promise, or the, the second lesson is this, God's promises grow at an unexpected pace. Most of you who know me know that I am a bit on the impatient side to be generous to myself. Nothing in my life is ever happening at the pace I would like it to happen. Maybe you feel that to some degree as well. Jacob assured, would have been assured by God that he would bring him up and out again, but this was not going to be a, an overnight stay in Egypt, and God had told them that already. Remember when, remember when God appeared to Abraham? And he does that strange thing that we talked about where the animal pieces are divided in half and God passes through those animal pieces taking that self-maledictory oath, that oath of may this happen to me and more if I don't keep my promises to you. And God says something to Abraham while he's in this dream state. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, he says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 400 years. Four centuries. That's like twice what our country has even been around. What that should tell us is that God's timetable is not our timetable. God has included so much process in the world that he's created and in your bit of the story. I, and I don't understand why. I don't understand why God has done things the way he has done, why he chose to create the world that he chose to create and why it has unfolded the way it has unfolded and why These pieces of God's plan have have unfolded so slowly over so many years. I don't understand any of it. And I don't understand why the pieces are unfolding slowly in my story or your story. I'm not changing and becoming the person I wish I could be at the pace that I'd hoped. You're probably not either. And sometimes we can look down and feel like because things are moving so slowly, maybe they aren't going at all. And the word of the Lord for you this morning is you don't have to understand what the process is. You just trust the process. God's promises grow at an unexpected pace. And they take Twists and turns that you cannot anticipate and not even account for after they have happened. But be patient. Wait. We're curious. We're 
hopeful. We watch in faith because He's given us His Word. And His Word, our hope, secures. When the people were finally in the land many years later, we see it at the end in Joshua chapter 21 and verse 45. The Bible says, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And that statement is just as true for you as it was for them. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He is worthy to unfold God's plan for your good, and you can bet he will. Let's pray. Lord, maybe some of us are just hanging on this morning. And for those of us who are just hanging on, I pray that you would give us hope. In this dark, broken world where we seem to do nothing but move backwards, where we feel the brokenness of the world, I pray that you would give us hope. In the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also a lamb, who would sacrifice himself to rescue us and to unfold your good promises there is someone here who does not know the lion and the lamb, would you give them the faith to trust you in this moment? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.